Let me remind you of a few things that are coming up. This weekend is a crazy busy weekend for us, unusually busy weekend. Friday night is the Matt, Pastor Matt and Erica Owen adoption fundraiser dinner here, 5.30 to 8.30. And the uh, cost is $10 for adults, $5 for teens. Uh, and, right, am I right about that? Look in your bulletin. But three and under are free, I know that. So it's a, a graduated scale, and we need to know who's coming for food purposes. So today's the last day, really, for you to let us know that. So please, at the Resource Center, before you leave today, uh, let them know that you're planning to attend and, and how many. And even if you don't have the money, uh, they can tell you how much it's going to be, but we just need to know the number of folks that are coming. And if you can't attend, it's a worthy cause, obviously, for their adoption fund. So if you can make a donation to that, that'd be, that'd be great. This, this Friday night, 5.30 to 8.30. So there'll be dinner. After the dinner, uh, they'll have a, a movie for the kids. They're going to have a, a raffle for uh, some Red Wing tickets. Those of you that are on our email list on Friday, I sent an email describing some of these. They're gift certificates to uh, Tijuana's uh, Mexican restaurant uh, owned by members of, of our church. So you want to support them. And uh, so you've got Red Wing tickets. You've got uh, Tijuana's uh, restaurant and uh, some other things that uh, good, pri- nice prizes, okay? So it's a worthwhile cause. We'll have a good time, but it's this Friday, 5.30 to 8.30. And then the next day, Saturday, we have two things going on. One is uh, a fundraiser for the uh, Allie Jolie Baldwin Foundation, and that's in honor of Allie, Brad, and Tamara's little one who's, who's with the Lord, and uh, it's for a, a family program, patient care for kids uh, that are uh, suffering, dealing with cancer, uh, and a program at Children's Hospital that the Baldwin Foundation is involved with, and it raises money for that. So that also is a worthy cause. And the event on Saturday is at Kirby Church. It's uh, called Relentless. It's a powerlifting thing. It starts at 9 o'clock. It goes all day. You can come in and out uh, at that. Uh, but if you can't make that or if you don't care about that kind of thing, again, if you can make a donation, that'd be great. Either way, the tickets or to make a donation, that's at the Resource Center. If you could do that before you leave, uh, that'd be marvelous. But the same day, that morning, is our periodic newcomer's brunch, and that's at our house. starts at 10 a.m. So those of you that have never been to one of our brunches, we would love to, to have you and be able to get to know you in that kind of setting. So if you've been here once, if you've been here 10 times, if you've been here for two years but you haven't been able to make one of the brunches and you can make it this Saturday, then please do. But we need to know who's coming. So let the information center know. That's the desk out in the uh, foyer. uh, And they'll sign you up and give us the list so we know how many folks are coming. They'll also give you an invitation that has our address on it, our phone number, and a map to our place as as well. All right, those are the things that are uh, coming up this, this weekend. Let me review what we've been looking at in our series that we started two weeks ago from self-help to, to God's help. We are on uh, session three, lesson three today. But in the first lesson, we looked at the big picture as, as God sees the circumstances of our life. And that big picture we have in picture form at each of these lessons. So you've got the lesson on the right page, and then if you look to the left, you see that uh, diagram And it has four major elements to it. The big picture of our circumstances includes the heat of life, the circumstances that we are in, and then our reaction to the heat of life, 
which is often negative, unhealthy, sinful, results in the second major component, which is on the right side of that diagram. So at the top, you've got the heat, the situation, and down to the right, an improper, unhelpful reaction results in thorns. And so you see the cactus there. And that creates ill fruit and consequences in our lives. And then what changes that? Because that fruit, that cactus comes from a root. You see on that, uh, on that pictorial that at the root there's a little heart and it's got a negative. This is a negative heart that I'm bringing to the heat, to the situation. And it's resulting in these thorns in my life, making matters worse, worse for me, worse for others. So how does that get transformed? And that's the bottom then, and the bottom shows the cross and the Redeemer. And Christ transforms our hearts so that instead of the negative heart that I bring to the situation, you see as you go up the left side of the page, the root of that next tree is a heart but a positive, a plus, bringing, bringing the right kind of heart to the heat, to the, the situation. And as a result of that, instead of a cactus, you've got a fruitful tree growing there. So you've got those four things. You've got the heat of life. You've got the thorns that grow because of our heart reactions. You've got the transformation that the Redeemer, Christ, makes in our hearts. And as a result of that, you have the fruit that grows in our lives in those situations, not in spite of those situations. So that's the big picture. We saw that two weeks ago. Last week, we started to look at the heat of life. Each one of those four things we have one lesson devoted to, or excuse me, two lessons devoted to each. So eight total lessons. Two for the heat, two for the thorns, two for the cross, two for the fruit. And this is the second lesson in the, the heat. Last week we started to look at the heat of life. And it's really looking at God and where God is in the difficult circumstances of our lives. And we saw that God is intimately involved, and we also saw that God gets it that there are passages in the Bible where the Bible just describes how hard things are, how bleak they are. And it doesn't seek to paper over the difficulties. It's very hard-hitting. It's very direct. We have in your notes from Lesson 2 Psalm 88 printed out for you because Psalm 88 just is dark, and it's about somebody who's in a dark place in their lives. Well, how is that hopeful? Well, it's hopeful because it's telling you that God who wrote the Bible gets it. He knows that. He knows what that's like, and that's why he puts things like that in Scripture. And now today we're going to continue to look at the, the heat of, of life. Last week we looked at where God is in the heat. Now we want to look at where you are, where I am in the heat. Now, everybody's got their own version of heat, difficulty. And, and I've got mine. I experienced it this past week. Um, I was accosted this past week. Uh, in my, assaulted really, in my house. Um, I, I know who did it, and here's what, here's what happened. Um, the routine in our home is that I roll out of the rack at least an hour before everybody else. I live with three women, my wife and two daughters. I have to get out of the bathroom, out of the shower, vacate the premises. This is our place. You do not belong here. So I get up much earlier than everyone else does. And I have my, my clock set, and the, the clock is right in my face. It is on a nightstand right next to my head. I can see the LED 
You know, and if I wake up at night, I can see what time it is. And the thing's right there, and I know where the button is when the alarm goes off. And I can turn that alarm off, and it takes one second. Right by my, bam, it's off, okay? So that's what, that's what normally happens. It all goes fairly smoothly. Uh, this past week, Monday, uh, the thing goes off, and uh, for whatever reason, it had gotten turned. You know, there's not the LEDs, not there. And so instead of my one-second routine... I'm having to do like braille interpretation of this thing at the top, feeling around. And uh, long about three and a half seconds in, there's a vicious punch to my back. <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm still only partly awake, but I've been assaulted. And kind of a bony, kind of a bony feel to the thing too, you know, the knuckles. And uh, I'm still fumbling around, and then at four and a half seconds, there's another vicious punch to the back. No words, just punches. Now, this whole ordeal takes a total of five seconds, and I've been punched twice. And the, the culprit is asleep. You know, when I get up, or <laughs> asleep, or acting like she's asleep. But I don't say anything. I go and do my, I go shower. I get, and then when she wakes up, I go, uh, you know, you punched me twice. And she doesn't remember any of this. Now, who do you believe, me or her? <laughs> go with me because she's not in the room for right, right now. But here's the heat in my life. See, you guys think she's all sweet and nice and everything. But this is what I've got to deal with, Okay. Day in and day out, week in and week out. So you all just mentioned that to, to Kim when, she, when you see her on the way out today, all right? Now, it's obviously all much more serious than that in the heat of life. And at the top of Lesson 3, you see the big question we want to look at today. As God sees me respond to the heat in my world, what in me does he want to change? Where is God calling me to personal change right now. And that's what we want to look at in our session together. So let me start it by asking you this. What did you expect your life to be like? Think about that. Did you expect an, order, an orderly, predictable, calm kind of life where your plans go forward unobstructed? And that's how most of us start out. You know, you make your plans and then they'll, they'll move forward and we don't Never stop to think about the curveballs that life is going to, to throw us. And so we have those expectations. Perhaps you assume that people will be mostly agreeable and affirm the choices you make. Or perhaps you never thought about the possibility of sickness or an accident or an injury. Do you believe that you can plan your way out of the stress that most of us have to face and avoid situations when you feel overwhelmed? Our experiences become all the more difficult when we carry unbiblical expectations into those experiences. Unbiblical expectations. So I've had a formula that I've used for a lot of years uh, in counseling, and it's this. Expectations minus reality equals difficulty. Expectations minus reality equals difficulty. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there's the reality, there's the heat, there's the situation, there's the stuff that I go through, often difficult in a fallen world. 
but you compare that to your expectations. I had expectations that it, whatever it is, my marriage, my job, my schooling, my health, whatever it is, it would go a particular way. Those are my expectations. And then those expectations now are compared and contrasted with the real world, real life, how it's playing out. And there is always a gap between those. There's always a difference between those. What I expected and what's really happening. Now, how am I going to respond to that gap, to that difference? And that, in turn, is going to develop either the cactus or it's going to develop the fruit on the other side of your, of your chart. But all of us have the initial reaction, all of us certainly outside of the aid of the Redeemer, outside of Christ, we all have the wrong reaction and we make matters worse for ourselves and, and for others. Expectations minus realities equals trouble. To put it another way, we have these expectations and we don't expect the reality of what life has, has brought us. So to put it another way, we're surprised by suffering. We're surprised by difficulty. And the more surprised we are, the more traumatic than it is. I certainly didn't expect this. I thought it would go a particular way, and then boom, whatever it is, throws me the curveball. Instead of a straight line, it's a left turn or a right turn. I'm surprised by suffering. Now you just think with me for a moment. If life is really as the Bible says it is, and it is, and it is played out in a fallen world with curses upon various aspects of the world we live in because of sin, and then populated by people who are all sinners, <laughs> then think about it. Should we be surprised by suffering? Actually, it should go the other way. We should be surprised when things go right. And, and I say that to you to try to reorient your thinking and my thinking. Because we're surprised when things go wrong, so what does that say? Most of the time they go right. Now why is it that most of the time they go right, and then I'm surprised and traumatized when they go wrong? When in fact, by all rights, living in a fallen, sinful, cursed world, they ought to go wrong like all the time. Well, that's a testimony to the grace of God, isn't it? That it's not like that. It very well could and by rights should be like that. So instead of us being surprised when they go right, we're surprised when they go wrong, and that's actually a testimony to something very good. That God in His grace has not made this sin-cursed place as bad as it could be. And so I say that to you as a note of hope that when you're thrown a curveball and then you're, you're shocked by it and you're traumatized by it, try to, to catch yourself and say, you know, this should be the norm in a fallen world. And the fact that it's not the norm is actually a matter of God's grace. But nonetheless, I have to face my form of heat, whatever, whatever, that, whatever that is. And so that's why, you know, a guy who plays by God's rules works hard, makes good choices, exercises a lot of discipline in his life, is serious about his relationship with the Lord, active in his church, faithful uh, to his, his wife. He's an involved father. 
he assumes that with all of that, he'll enjoy the good life. And then he comes home to his place in Florida, and it's been uh, devastated by a hurricane. There's a curveball. And he didn't expect that. And the question for him and for you and for all of us when those kinds of things happen is, where was God? Why would God let this happen? And he's shocked and he's angry and he's disappointed because it was not supposed to happen that way. Well, let's think about the details of the real world, the heat that we find ourselves in. And you see some of those details on your lesson three, given in Romans chapter 8. Verses 20 to 22, we have listed for you there. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now here there in that passage, there are three phrases that are used to describe earthly life between the fall where we are and Christ's return. The first one is the first line there, subjected to frustration. The creation is subjected to frustration. So the heat of life involves that subjection to frustration that permeates all of creation. What it's saying is this, we live in futility and we live in a broken world. That's what that first line's telling you. The whole creation is subjected to frustration. And so things don't work the way they're supposed to. Things that should change don't change as often as they should, if ever. The frustration includes your efforts looking like they count for nothing. That frustration includes waking up in the morning, you've got that knot in your stomach because you know the problem's still there. The frustration exists in little and big ways. You know, in, in traffic jams and in, and in hurricanes. But it's still all the same frustration that creation is subjected to. You see it in squabbling children who spoil yet another dinner that mom labored hard to, to prepare, or by some money-hungry executive who bankrupts your company and now you're, you're out of a job. Sin, the Bible is teaching us in Romans 8, has frustrated the world and none of us escapes it. So then the question is, that's where we are in this heat. Last week it was about where God is in this heat. This is where we are and we're in it and it's everywhere and we're part of the world that is subjected to this kind of brokenness and futility and frustration and how do we respond to it? That's what we want to, to see in this lesson. God wants us to see how we respond to it so that we know where he wants us to change. So here's another of these three phrases. The first one is subjected to frustration. Here's the second one, bondage to decay. So verse 21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. So the whole world is decaying, including me, including you. From the moment you're born, you start decaying. And that's a pick-me-up, isn't it? I mean... That's, that's, the, that's the fact. 
Uh, from the second you're conceived, the process of dying begins. The, that great new car that you wanted, that you saved up for, or that you went and hocked for, but that thing's going to be going to rust, may become dented in a, in a car accident. That beautiful bouquet is going to wilt and, and die. Our homes deteriorate, our relationships disintegrate. Even our spiritual lives tend toward decay. That's why the Bible is always telling us to stay warm to the Spirit, to stay warm toward God, because they will tend to decay. They will tend to become cold and dead. And so God, who once seemed so close to us, now seems dry and and boring. And in God's original plan, life was to give way to more life, on into eternity. But Romans 8 is telling us because of sin and this bondage to decay, this decay has been inflicted on our world and none of us will escape it. So where do you encounter that in your life? In the heat that you're in. And then here's the third phrase used in Romans 8. It's the groaning as in pains of childbirth in verse 22. You ladies who have given birth can just, you know, can feel that and the kind of intense pain that that's, that that's talking about. In those first two phrases, the subjected to frustration, bondage to decay, that's just describing what life is like. This third phrase now Groaning, groaning as in pains of childbirth, this is focusing on the experiences that we have in the midst of life, and it's, and it's painful. And so it's telling us that life in a fallen world that is subjected to frustration and in bondage to decay is filled with struggle and pain. But the image of childbirth does something else. It tells us that pain's part of a process. The now is painful because then won't be. The now is painful because then, later, it won't be. And that's exactly what happens in in childbirth. Painful now, but for this ultimate cause of the child being born and the pain released, a child will be born, and then the mother experiences, though she experiences pain now, she will experience that joy then. And it reminds us that there is something redemptive going on in our pain but it doesn't make the pain go away. But hear this, friends. Understanding the hope of the gospel doesn't then produce a denial in us that there's real pain, a stoicism that says just grit your teeth and eke it out. You don't deal with the pain, and the Bible doesn't call you to do that by minimizing the pain. The Bible is clear there is pain, and we shouldn't be shocked when it comes our way. And so, again, I ask you, where are you experiencing that pain, that pain now? And so as you, as you consider those three verses and the three phrases in those verses, subjected to frustration, bondage to decay, pains of, of childbirth, frustration, decay, pain, they're true of the creation. The passage says it's an all-encompassing category and it includes everything. Here, this creation includes everything except God. <laughs> so everything, including everybody, is subject to those those things. Nothing I'm involved with, nothing around me functions the way it was originally intended. Everything is broken in one way or another. And you see it everywhere. Let me give some examples. In storms, natural disasters, in our physical bodies with disease and weakness and old age, in our relationships with conflict and division, 
in the mechanical world as planes crash and trains wreck and appliances break down, in our culture with distorted values, with racism, corrupt government, ethnic cleansing, perverted justice, in our work where the weeds and thorns that were part of the curse in Genesis 3 and all the matters that I just mentioned, they all make our labor, our work day to day more difficult, more burdensome. And then the Bible adds another thing. It's not just that the world is frustration is frustrated and in bondage and in pain. It's not just that I live in a difficult place. The Bible adds another element, that there's a malevolent force in the world that the Bible calls Satan, the accuser, the devil. So it's not just the environment. That's bad enough. But then you have someone who is seeking to use the pain and the frustration and the decay to create more pain and frustration and decay. Like we saw in James chapter 1 last week, God allows difficulty trials into our lives. But then James goes on to say, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. You guys remember that? And that word for tempted is the same word for for trial used earlier in that, in that chapter. And what James who wrote it is saying is the external circumstance, life in a fallen world, is something that a sovereign God controls, but He brings those circumstances for His good ends, His good purposes, but there's someone else who wants to use that trial as a temptation to sin. God wants to use it as a, an opportunity for maturity and wisdom and growth. But Satan is a player. So there's the fallen world, and then there is the enemy. And so with all of that, that's the real world I'm in. How am I supposed to to deal with all that? And the Bible tells us, (laughs) where are we in all this? How do we tend to respond to all of that? And it shows us in a few passages, and we have some of those listed for you on on your sheet. So we're going to see some of these from the book of Numbers and also from the book of of Deuteronomy. But before we look at those, if you were to film a video, you won't be in the video, right? Because you're behind the the camera. So you can see everyone, you can see everything else, but you're not going to see yourself because you're behind the camera. And I bring that up because that's the way we tend to tell our stories about what's going on with us. We're not in the story. You see, all this bad stuff is happening around me, and it is indeed a a, a fallen world with all of the junk that, that we've talked about. But we tend to talk about it as outside of us, and we're not in it. So what's going on in your life? Well, my husband is doing X. What's going on in your life? My boss is doing. What's going on in your life? The doctor told me that I've been diagnosed with fill in the blank. And in all of those, those explanations, I want you to notice what's missing in all of those. Me and how I'm dealing with those. How I'm reacting to them. What we tend to do is describe our situations, our heat, without us in it. And what God does now in Scripture is gives us example of people in the heat of life, in the difficulty of life, so that we see ourselves in it. We see how they reacted, and we go, oh, that's how I react. Oh, that's what I do. 
And so one of the ways the Bible does that is by giving us these narratives, these stories, one of which takes place in a wilderness with God's people having been brought out of bondage in Egypt, led marvelously by God's servant Moses. God does all of these miracles to overcome Pharaoh, the most powerful human on earth. God takes them across the Red Sea miraculously. He drowns the Egyptian army. And when they come to the banks of the land that God says, I want you to go in and take, they go, we don't think you can pull this one off. That's what they say. I know you did all this other stuff, but that one's a, that's a bridge too far. So we're, we're not going to do that. We've had a vote, and it's not the right time for the will of God to be <laughs> pursued. And as a result, they wander in the wilderness. And then in their wilderness wanderings, they now have the heat. The, the heat, literally. The difficulties, literally. But these are difficulties to which they contribute in the way that they react to them. And they are in the story, and they make the story worse. They're in the wilderness in this case because of what they've done, and they make it worse by what, how they react to being in this, in this very wilderness. So this one was too long to print on your page. If you have your Bible, you can look at it. If not, you can just listen as I read. But it's Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11, verses 4 through 23. Numbers 11, beginning in verse 4. So they're wandering in the wilderness. Here's what the Bible says. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. <laughs> also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and garlic. And now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. You wonder where your kid gets that. You know, that again? The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot and made it into cakes. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? So here's Moses in the heat. Moses is in the heat of other people. Other people are now his heat. Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not carry it alone. Let me just stop there. Is it, you see God's grace in that? 
Here's Moses complaining to God Almighty, and here's God in grace responding to, to his plea. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty for, for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here am I among 600,000 men on foot and you say, I'll give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not I, what I say will come true for you. Now, you read that and you go, Wow. These are people who had seen God's mighty hand. And this is how they're behaving. And you can see how God is angry with their ingratitude. The startling thing in this passage is this particular trial is relatively minor. It centers on a monotonous menu. But the Bible doesn't, in this passage, you notice as we read that, it doesn't focus on the trial. It focuses on how the people responded to it. And what were some of the reactions that I just read? They complained. They wailed. They longed for bygone days, they criticized their leader, they rejected the Lord, they questioned God's wisdom. And you remember I said a lot of times there's a situation but we don't see ourselves in it? That's what we do. That's what they were doing. That's what we tend to do. Don't we tend to do some of the same things? We long for life the way it was before. We look for somebody to blame. We question God's faithfulness, His goodness, His love, and His wisdom. And in all of those things, in longing for the way it was before, in finding somebody to blame, in questioning God's goodness and faithfulness and, and wisdom and love, what's glaringly absent is us. We remove ourselves from the picture. And so we blame our circumstances, other people, and we forget that our hardship is made even harder, hear this, is made even harder by our response to it. And that's precisely why God includes that narrative. For us to see that that's the way we tend to react. Now they had the bane then of this boring food. And that's how they reacted. But then they also have, the book of Numbers tells us, the fear of threatening circumstances. And we have that listed for you on your page. You see Numbers chapter 14? And let's see how they respond to that. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You go, man, are those people stupid. And God's saying, there's a mirror. Because that's the very kind of thing that we do. So this passage goes beyond the, the boring food and the complaints about that. 
if the struggles that they were having in the wilderness were overwhelming, then the prospects now of going into the promised land are even more scary for them. This is Numbers 14. We don't have time, but I encourage you to look at yourself. Look at Numbers 13. Because Numbers 13 records spies going into the promised land to make an assessment of what would be required to take possession. And what did the people do? In reaction, they panicked when they learned that even in this place that they had longed for, for for so long, they would not be free of trials. They realized they were going to have huge obstacles, and in Numbers 14 that we just read, they're in an all-out panic. Why did we leave? Why is the Lord bringing this on us? What's going to happen to our wives and children? Wouldn't it be better to go back? And isn't that the kind of thing you say? How in the world did I get here? Where is the Lord in all this? What's going to happen to me now? What am I going to do in this situation? Same stuff they're asking, same stuff we ask. And then God gives us yet another example in Numbers chapter 20. And this is an example of how we tend to blame other people for what's going on in our lives. Numbers 20, 1 through 5. It's listed on your sheet there. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert? that we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. So who are you going to blame? Moses and Aaron. So they start the, the blame game. So as they continue in this journey now, things get, get worse. They're tired of difficulty. It's often the case with all of us, so they start looking for somebody to blame. Moses is an easy target. Now, here's what this passage tells us about us. Our pain often morphs into anger. So life in a fallen world is full of frustration and decay and pain. But our response often morphs it, changes the pain now into anger. Anger at God anger at whoever. And you think about the ways that, that it happens. Think about an agitated hospital patient in pain and what? Angry. We got nurses. You guys know what I'm talking about. So that agitated hospital patient yelling at the nurse, the husband who feels neglected by his wife, so he becomes bossy and demanding, a salesman who's on his way, struggling to try to make a living, going to a potential sale, but he gets stuck in traffic, and we got a road, road rage incident going on. He's blaring on his horn and giving all sorts of gestures to people. The stressed-out mom who becomes harsh and critical with her children. The pain morphs into anger in sinful people. Now, this passage in Numbers chapter 20, and when you do that and I do that, the pain morphs into anger. It reveals more about you and me than it does about the situation. It reveals our hearts. It reveals what's going on 
in us. It's more about us than it does about the trial. And the Bible keeps the focus on us. When we tell the story, we're behind the camera. We're not in the story. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, you're in the story. You're an active participant in the midst of this pain. And the reason the pain becomes anger is because of the heart that you bring to it. So they had the boring food. That was part of their heat. We saw how they reacted. They've got the threat of difficulty when they go into the promised land. They're afraid. We saw how they reacted. They play the, the blame game. Anger now at Moses and Aaron and, of course, at God. And in all of that, what does God do? And what is God doing in your heat? I mean, that's you and me in the midst of our situations. That's the way we tend to do it. That's why it makes it worse. But what's God doing in all of this? And that's what Deuteronomy 8 is all about. And we have that in your notes as well. Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. This is before they're going in finally. (laughs) To humble you and to test you. In order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And I'm going to go on, I'm going to go on reading that passage. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and revering Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vine and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce, you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. And God says this, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful you do not forget. Failing to observe his commands, his laws and decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise you'll eat and be satisfied. You'll build fine houses and settle down. And when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Do you know what God is saying there? As they stand on the banks and they prepare to go in, he's saying, in all of that stuff that we did these last 40 years, I was preparing you. I'm preparing you now because your heart has been active the whole 40 years. Your heart's going to be active when you go in. And I've been disciplining you to prepare you for now the good things that are, that are to come. So God in Deuteronomy 8 says he was doing three things. Preparing them for the obstacles that they would face with the difficulties in the promised land, but mostly the blessings. They needed to see, secondly, the propensity of their own hearts to drift away from trusting God and obeying his commands. They'd seen they'd been doing that for years, and God is warning them, don't let that happen when you go in the promised land. And the third thing is they needed to see regular demonstrations of God's power so that they would not fear what they encounter in the promised land, knowing that God can handle them. He was preparing them for all of that. But when they were in the midst of the heat, they didn't get that. So how did they respond, and how do you and I respond? We're still in the wilderness. Life on earth is like a wilderness. 
Each day we've got unexpected difficulties. Blessings even knock us off our paths. And in it all, God works to expose and change and mature us. Now we're almost done, friends. Stay with me. In the midst of your heat, in the midst of your wilderness, God has not forgotten you or the promises that he's made to you. And he's not left you to your own power and your own wisdom in ways that are his and are hard for us to understand, yet God is still in the heat of your situation. And what he calls each of us to do is stop questioning him and begin examining ourselves. Where do you question God's goodness, His grace, His love? In what situations do you toy with going back to Egypt? And you know what that would be like for, you, for, for us. That's, that's going back to the old life. This, this Christian life thing is too hard or it didn't do what it was supposed to. God's not upholding His end of the bargain. I'm going back to Egypt. I'm going back to the old, old way of life. When do you neglect study and worship, or struggle with anger and envy and disappointment and blame. So right now as we conclude, think of a situation or a relationship that's a regular source of struggle for you. And what do you think about God? What do you think about other people? What do you think about yourself as you wrestle through that? What are you craving? The expectations that weren't met. If only I had fill in the blank then I'd be able to serve God. Then I would be able to, I'd be fine. How do you respond to the situation? And so what tends to get to you most? Problems in your relationships, difficulty at your work, disappointment in your marriage, problems in your church, extended family relations, health, parenting, an overbooked schedule, pressures of the culture, finances, the expectations of other people the temptations of a promotion, of affluence. And Psalm 46.1 says this, Our God is an ever-present help in the time of trouble. And what He wants you to do in the midst of that heat, what He's doing, is exposing what's going on in your heart. And what's going on in your heart, just like what was going on in their heart, is what then produces the cactus. Worse for them, worse for everybody else. Now, what's God's solution uh, to that? It's in the Redeemer. It's in the cross. But God wants us to see not just the root now, our hearts, but he wants us to see the ill fruit that comes out of that. And that's the thorns. And we're in the next two weeks going to be looking at those thorns together, how the consequences then come out of that sinful heart, inappropriate responses to what God is allowing into our lives for his good purposes. So we've got the next two Sundays, and I won't be with you. I will be with you next Sunday, and then two weeks from today and three weeks from today, I will be in China. So pray for me while I'm in China. Next week, we'll look at Thorns 1, and then we'll look at Thorns 2 when I get back. And in between, Brother Zach Hamilton is going to be, going to be leading this class, but we'll all be together next week, okay? All right, let's ask the Lord to go with us. Father, we thank you for this uh, time to consider the narratives, the stories that you've placed in your word so that we can see ourselves in the midst of the interaction of regular people like us uh, before our God. 
Lord, as we look at those people, help us to understand that these, according to your word, were given as examples and warnings for us. So help me, help us not to look at those people as exceptions. Help us to not look at them as exceptionally foolish or stupid. Lord, you included them because they're us. And in my heat, in my situations, I respond in similar ways, making things worse. And so help me to examine myself rather than question you. I pray that my brothers and sisters will do that very thing as well. We ask you to go with us this week, Lord. And help us to look at our circumstances now through eyes, the eyes of Scripture. And help us to see in the heat that is our lives, and it's different for every one of us. Help us to see that our God is doing something, is active. Help us to believe that and act and react accordingly. We pray that you would grant us safety. Bring us back together so that we can learn of you and put into practice these things that you're teaching us from your word so that we can display you in our portion of your world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.